I'm with Paul Tuchinsky. We are at the Choice Conference in Madrid at the moment. The last time I chatted with Paul, uh, and we did a short video outside of the EODF uh, 2015 in Milan, where we talked about the difference between organizational design and organizational development. Uh, Paul, you've been, you're, a you're like, we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. You're a giant in the field of, of organizational design. Tell us, first of all, what the difference is. Let's, let's remember that distinction because some people may still not be aware of the difference between organizational design and development. And then let's look at what, why it's important. I want to look at it particularly through the lens of how organizational design impacts decision-making and, and, and changes how people interact with one another, you know, how they actually communicate in order to get things done. Okay. I was actually trained first as an organization development person. And then in graduate school, uh, began to do organization design work. You know, and I, I think the simplest differentiation for me, others might not agree, is organization development is really about the psychology of people and the psychology of groups and group dynamics. I think the strength of organization development is the understanding of individuals, how they adapt, how they respond, how they resist, how they overcome resistance, you know, and or groups, how do people work together and interact and what's the psychology of what happens when people come together? That's organization development from my point of view. Um, the difference is organization design, it sort of starts at the group level and goes up from there, not down, right? And so organization design is more about how do groups of groups work together and how do you decide what a group is? Right? So organization design is primarily about the organization of the organization. How do you know, in my framing, I always say, how do you create places of work that are interesting, meaningful, and fun, profitable, and productive? That's design, right? How you organize, whether it's the physical setting, the roles and responsibilities, the reporting relationships, the power dynamics, the decision-making processes, that's all design. Um, Development is how do you help people grow, change, adapt, right, to those circumstances? You know, so, you know, in my perspective, it's never been either or. I think some people sort of put it that way. Um, and, and I understand a little bit of why, but it's a both and. You can't do good org design without good organization development. If you don't understand group dynamics, and how people behave and how they respond to requests, right? And things like that, then you can't do good design. Even in my large group work, it's as much about the psychology of people and, and group dynamics as it is whole systems thinking. I think org designers are by nature more systems thinkers. They, they would sacrifice the individual for the whole. An org development person would probably never do that mm. or rarely do that. Right. You know, so, so you, you know, if you're a good org designer, you should put org development right up there with what you're doing. If you're a good org developer, you don't need to worry so much about design. It's more of a given and an assumption. You know, so I think you know, so it's it's a both end. It's sort of two sides of a coin. You know, and the best org designers are appreciative org development people. 
know, I think that's probably the, the simplest answer to this question. You know, when you sort of define out org development, right, the practices, leadership training, training and development, psychometrics, right, hiring, talent management, maybe even T groups, you know, and, and group therapy and things like that, right? That's, that's the sort of this, the development path for people who are in org development. Org designers probably come more from business school, economics, maybe engineering, process engineering, something like that. You know, my background was I was a human resource person to new product development. And so we would start up a product line to test market a new product. And my job was organize people around the machinery, document what we were doing and why, talk to the workers about how they wanted to do the job because it was brand new. Nobody had ever done it. You know, and so it was an incubator for learning about this interface between people and technology. Or development people don't worry so much about the interface. They're more focused on one part of it, right? Or designers are more... How do the two actually fit together? Mm. So you almost have to have a little bit of an engineering mind, right? An org development person is probably a good psychologist who didn't want to be a therapist, right? Decided to take it inside. Mm, that's very interesting. I appreciate that. I would imagine also, I should add, I would imagine also that design thinking is now edging its way into the organizational design process because we've got organizations that are morphing from very highly structured, almost rigid uh, designs into something that's more fluid, more mobile, more responsive, more capable of holding people, you know, instead of just the assets of the people. So, you know, how does that change? I mean, there's a confluence of factors, right? I mean, pretty much the design of the dominant design model for organizations is 150 years old. Right. Goes back to the 1870s. Maybe you only go back as far as Frederick Taylor and Henry Ford. But, you know, even at that, it makes it 100 years old. And so it's probably due for some modernization anyway. But you have a confluence of things going on, whether it's social media, um, the Internet, you know, the Internet of everything. Um, Information is much more readily available, you know, and old reason for hierarchy and structure was as a communication conduit. I mean, what managers and supervisors did was communicate information, what to do, how to do it, expectations, etc. You no longer need that. So we need to, re- we're redefining. So between a different mindset among young people and what they actually look for in work, um, their attitudes and feelings towards power and authority and hierarchy information access, information availability, all these things are putting pressure on organizations to say, we really need to explore a different model. We began to do it in the 70s and the 80s, mostly pushed by the Japanese. Mostly pushed by the Japanese to say, okay, well, you know, they're gonna beat our pants off if we don't figure out a better way, right? And so in the 70s and 80s, we really began an exploration. But then we got a little bit on par with the Japanese and the pressure went off, right? So and there wasn't- complacency set right, in again. And complacency set back in again, said, okay, well, we're, you know, we're good. We're fine where we are right now. You know, and, and over the last 20 years, the internet of everything 
and the explosion in information and information access and availability has sort of kept turning the fire up to the point where we're now at this point where we have to decide. I think the other thing that's happening, which is a little bit about this conference that you and I are at, is we're at a choice point, right? And, you know, the other factor that's now influencing it is the whole conversation around the role of business in the planet, right? Um, You know, and, and a lot of people are making their employment choices based on the organization's commitment, whether it's to the UN goals or to, you know, B Corp or B Benefit, like I talked about yesterday. So there's much more pressure on organizations to look at the organization of the organization. And that's, I, I like that phrase because it's not just about hierarchy and it's not, I, I don't like the word hierarchy. I'm okay with the word structure. I like the concept of liberating structures better than either of the other two, but you know, so, so some form of structure is never going to go away. Mm-hmm. You need that, right? You know, but you don't need hierarchy. And so this exploration of how to, what, what's the form and what form does it take and what are the processes that we use and how do we leverage brain power? Those are all organization design questions. They're not organization development, particularly questions. You have story after story after story. Let's talk about some stories that illustrate where design has solved a organizational, say, a decision-making problem that has come up, and and the design the, the decisions are are at a, a stall, shall we say, because the interactions around the decisions are not designed well. That interface is not. If I'm if I'm phrasing this accurately. And, you know, when you ask the question, I have sort of two that come to mind. The first is in an organization that does intelligence gathering for the U.S. government, whose name I won't mention. And, you know, and they had a training and development organization that, that trained anybody who was involved in intelligence gathering. You know, and as you could imagine, in the broadest sense of the term training, it was everything from leadership training and language training to breaking and entering, you know, how to recruit a asset, evasive driving. I mean, it was crazy, you know, and, and it had evolved over 50, 60 years from the original OSS to what it was today. And the dominant training was language because as, as a spy, if you go somewhere, you have to be very fluent in the local dialect, and you can't have nuances in your speaking or you will be immediately called out. And so language training was sort of at the heart of what this organization did. And they prided themselves in that, of course, right? We don't want people dying because we taught them the wrong word for that context and somebody caught it, you know? And and so all of the decisions were made by the language department, but they never asked the customer what they wanted. In over 50 years, the customer's needs changed. And in fact, there were cottage industries that were competitors. You know, there were, whether it's something like Rosetta Stone or Burlitz or whatever, there were lots of competitors. But this organization was very insulated. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, you had to have a security clearance even to train or to be trained. You know, and so that maybe precluded some outside vendors. But all of the decisions were made by the language department what courses they would offer, how often they would offer them, 
right? What budget they would have, what budget they would use, everything. They controlled it all. A new leader came in and said, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? At minimum, it ought to, the decision-making process ought to include the customer and figure out what the demand really is. And do we need to offer all these courses all the time? And are we the best, cheapest, highest quality answer? So we began this whole redesign exploration about how do we redistribute power and authority and decision-making in order to better align to the customer. Over the course of a year, we redesigned this whole institution, 700 on paper, 700 people. And the decision was all 700 would have to decide it together. You couldn't leave it to the language department to decide it for themselves because they'd just keep it the way it was. You know, and so the decision was that the decision process for how to reorganize the business would be taken by the whole. The largest group by headcount was the language group. So if they voted in block, they would control the deck. Uh, and there was a lot of debates and discussion about how do you decide that. In the end, it was decided one person, one vote, and you got one green dot and one red dot. There were four choices that the leadership, 60 people, um, had defined. The only criteria in the designing of the four choices was that the leadership had to be willing to implement whatever choice people made. They didn't get to say, no, that's a bad idea. Thank you for your vote. Commitment was whatever the collective decides, we do. And you could imagine the options were everything from pretty much keep it the way it is to radical, I call it a radical lobotomy, right? I mean, really far out. And over the course of a couple of days, the deliberations went on where people explored these four choices. And then on the evening of the last day or the day before the last day, people had a chance to say, okay, if we choose this one, this is what would have to change for us to like it. If we choose this one, this is what would have to, in order for me to accept it, it would have to have blah, blah, blah. And then the last day they came in and everybody voted. And when we said go vote, nobody moved for like five minutes. And I realized that what they were waiting for was the leader to vote. Power and authority, right? He yeah. really probably has an answer, mm. right? You know, and I went up to him and I said, you know, I think what's going on in the moment is they're waiting for you because they think you have a preference. I said, you know, you might want to speak to that. He got on the microphone and he said, I told you before, I will implement whichever of these four you decide. I've committed all four of them. I'm willing to implement any one you choose. It's your call. Get up and tell me what you want to do. And everybody got up and voted. And, and in that moment, people voted for the most radical of the choices, including a significant number of the language people, because they let go of myopic self-interest and voted for what was best for the organization and the system at that moment. You know, and, you know, and there was a lot of risk in that, obviously. You know, but it's it, sort of the dynamic, we changed the decision-making dynamic from one small group decides for themselves and nobody messes with them to we're all accountable and responsible for what we do as a group, right? And the decision-making process has got to be different, right? And so we, we voted on, they picked the one that was the most radical. We spent the next couple of hours talking about how does it get fine-tuned and reshaped in order for those who didn't vote for it to be willing to support it moving forward. Three months later, we implemented it. I mean, literally 700 people voted and decided. And 
almost 70% of them were in a new job three months later. No grievances, nobody fired, no complaints to the Civil Service Commission or anything else like that. Nobody lost their job, right? And it was amazing, right? And this organization today now does training and development for the whole of the intelligence community in the United States, for everybody. That's the one story. The other is client in Germany. The executives made a decision to go to hybrid gas engines. The world made a decision to go to electric. My client was given the job of figuring out how to catch up. And you have 1,600 people who are committed to gas hybrid engines. Sort of, rec sort of recognizing that, in fact, that's not where the world is going and we're behind, right? And how do we catch up? You know, and the leadership team could have made the decisions. They knew, they knew what the situation was. They didn't really know necessarily what all the scenarios were and what the choices were, but they knew they needed to ride gas hybrids for as long as they could while getting on the electric e-mobility bandwagon, right? And so the, so the question was, how do we redesign the organization and to what end, right? And what, what really is the scenario we're going to bet on or the scenario we want to put our energy into? And so with the whole 1,600 people, we began an exploration about, you know, what are the choices? We can go high road, take the biggest risks possible. By the way, that costs 400 million euro. We could keep riding the gas, which probably, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have some version of uh, combustion engines for probably still another 20 years. And the ones that are still on the road are not going to go away. So there's going to be a business for that for a while. We could just keep riding that, right? We got plenty of time. Don't worry. Two, we need to sell that off, put the money we get from it into a new startup. 400 million just to get going, right? And then obviously the choices in between. And again, it was the leader saying, I need 1,600 people fully committed to making whatever we're going to say happen, happen. We don't have a decision-making process for that. We've never done that. It's always been top-down. It's a very traditional German automobile company. Right? And by the way, the senior executive vice president is the one that put all the money into the gas. And so he's resisting the whole thing the whole time. Right? Because basically what we're saying is you made a mistake and he's not willing to admit that he's made a mistake. So you're in this situation dynamic. You have to bring the senior vice president along and say, yeah, you made a mistake, but you can still fix it. Right? You can still be the hero, so to speak. You know, and so the organization design process was to get people really thinking about what's the end game we want to shoot for. And how do we realign the pieces and the parts in order to make it work? Some pieces and parts don't fit and we need to stop them. Sort of clean house, if you will. In the cleaning house, we make space for, I always, my metaphor when we were doing the project is like spring cleaning in your closet. You got to get rid of all the old clothes that don't fit anymore, you know, and the winter clothes and stuff like that. And when you get rid of all that, you have a bunch of hangers that you can hang a whole bunch of new stuff on, right? And that was, the, that was sort of the approach to it. 
you know, and so over the course of six, eight months, people organized into study teams, literally from China to the U.S. to Germany to India, and began these explorations together where they would play around with, well, you know, what do we have that we could use in a new world? What do we have that won't fit at all? If we had to go buy a new something in order to fit it, because we don't have time to build it ourselves, you know, who's out there that maybe we could acquire? Um, so there was this huge, massive, I called it mirror, mirror on the wall, self-reflection, all this, you know, and it, what it did is in the decision process, it gave everybody the information that they needed in order to, A, understand that it's a complex answer and the one I think might be the right one might not, and B, to saying, you know, I get it, we need to do it, and we need to do it quickly. And, you know, in over seven, eight months, they aligned on a proposal. They took it to the supervisory board and said, actually, they asked for 300 million euro, right? And it was sort of like going to Shark Tank, right? And saying, okay, you know, here's our sales pitch. We need 300 million euro, and here's what we can do for you tomorrow. You're the venture capital fund. Here's, you know, and people, I mean, literally workers from Romania and China and the U.S. and Germany made the sales pitch to the supervisory board. They'd never even met these people before, right? And the, ex the executive leader sat there and coached them, you know, and I think the supervisory board bought it, not because they believed it was the right answer, but because they believed they'd never seen that level of commitment on the part of people and this committed to the decisions that they made, right? So, and I think, you know, that story is as much organization development as it is organization design, right? You're thinking about how do we move people who have been working on one thing forever, their whole life has been invested in a 48 volt combustion engine that's quite recognized in the field, but, you know, in 10 years we'll be a dinosaur. You know, and so it's sort of managing the two to create a decision process where in the end you have 100% of the people 100% committed right, to what they're choosing. Those are my two stories. Excellent. Thank you. That really puts a texture on it. The other thing I'm seeing, and I'm curious about the back end in terms of design, is you see people, you, you see an organized, you know, the, the, the whole need to distribute you know, move from centralized decision-making down to more distributed decision-making is, is very much in my mind an interface question. What, and of course, when you also see some beliefs and assumptions about that. So the dominant belief being that it takes more time if I distribute it, and if it takes more time, it's much more efficient because the organizations love efficiency. You know, it's much more efficient if I just make the decision myself and then, and then live with whatever that looks like. And so there's no basic, you know, if you, if you look at a decision that gets made that way, there's no, uh, when it goes badly wrong or even wonderfully right, there's no real look at what's the implication mm -hmm. of keeping that so narrowly boxed in. In terms of design, what do you see in terms of how we move distributed decision making out to where it belongs in terms of closeness to the information, responsiveness, and all of those things vis-a-vis -vis these kinds of beliefs and assumptions? You know, I mean, it, it's, um, there's a couple things that you trigger when you ask the question. The first is, from an organization design perspective, when is done done? When are you done designing, right? When are you done designing? Some people think that they're done designing when they have the design, 
other people believe they ha that design isn't done until it's fully embraced and embedded in the system, which means that you prototype it, you pilot it, you fine tune it, and then you embed it in the system somehow. You anchor it, whether that's simply in the hearts and minds of people, or it becomes a documented best practice. It's anchored somehow into the fiber of the system in a way that enables it to sustain itself through the next change. The challenge is, you know, the question of, you know, are you ever done is no, right? Because you need, you know, if we use words like adaptive, reconfigurable, then every organization design has a shelf life. We should review it. We should update it. It should be a living, breathing thing. So anchoring and embedding are good, but there's a dynamic tension between how anchored, how embedded, and how do we continually adapt and reconfigure the, um, you know, and I mean, I, I used to say the Japanese manager story is about um, Japanese manager said, we get 1700 suggestions per employee per year. American manager looked at me and said, my people are just as smart. Somebody had the insight asked this Japanese manager, what exactly did that mean? And his answer was, we received 1,700 fully implemented, documented improvements per year. Not, you know, and everybody looked at each other like, holy shit, right? Because the American English definition of a suggestion is a good idea waiting to happen. That's right. It's not. It's not a fully implemented, documented improvement, right? It's a good idea waiting for somebody to evaluate it, rubber stamp it, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, it, I thought, you know, it's organization design is done when you have a fully implemented, documented solution, not a good idea waiting to happen, you know, and so... It's into the daily work, it's into the hearts and minds, it's into the fiber of people. Uh, and it's um, and it, it, it's balanced between, it's got a shelf life, it's good for now, and we should make a commitment to relook at it and, and, and rethink it on some regular basis, whatever the, right, whatever the biorhythm of the system is, right? It has some, there's some biorhythm in every industry how fast they move, how quickly they need to think these things, um, you know. So, um, so that's I think that's what embedding is, right? And then embedding, embedding could be putting in place a process for review, right? I have, there's a company in uh, in Germany that does what they call spring cleaning, right? Every you know every spring, every March, April, they relook at everything, and they say. Are we working on the right things? Are they still the important things? Are we organized to deliver them correctly? You know, and so they adapt and reconfigure and they have a formal sort of, you know, every year a check process for that. Um, but that's built into their designing, right? It's, a, it's, it's just a process that enables them to continually adapt and, and revise themselves. Yeah, automatic learning. It's a wonderful way to keep refreshed. Now, related to that, and, and, you know, my question is that in, in a, this is a dynamic world we live in. So, 
you know, as in the within the context of the question is being done, there's also the element of responsiveness. When when things change on the outside, uh, who's paying attention to what's going on on the inside to know that there needs to be some kind of shift in response or some kind of re exactly that that spring cleaning that rethink whether it's annually or just you know or, or specific triggers show up what have you witnessed there in terms of company practices you know there are, i mean there are two things in what you say the first is there's some sensing sense making right process that when you think about the design of the system not just the organization you say you know how is it permeable um, how does input come in from where how do we track it use it, evaluate it, um, you know, and so, so there's, there's, there's that part of it. Um, you know, the, the second part of it is, um, reflection, right? I mean, I, my old client in India, they do what they call mirror, mirror on the wall, right? Which is sort of this internal external reflection process that says, you know, um, are we doing the right things the right way? You know, what's the voice of the customer? Um, how do we continue to grow and develop and adapt? You know, their story was growing 20% per year and falling behind their number one competition, right? So they were running pretty damn fast, but they weren't running fast enough. And people were pretty happy with 20% per year. Um, you know, and, and but the those who sort of had this um, external facing, uh, ear to the ground, sort of work responsibility. They were saying, yeah, but it ain't good enough. It ain't good enough. It ain't good enough. You know, and the process they created was one that helped people see the world differently in order to enable them to adapt, right? To change, to modify, to revise their processes, to revise their structures. Um, to redeploy to the right things, right? Reconfigure, um, you know, so there's got to be some kind of sensing, sense-making, reflection processes built into the design of the organization that enables the system to continually sense, sense-make, reflect, adapt, right? Um, you know, and that's why we talk about you know, the problem with hierarchical organizations is that they're just not as limber. Right? They're not as flexible. Um, you know, my old partner, Kathy Danimo, she talked about arthritic, right? That was her phrase. They were arthritic. They got calcified, not quite as easy to move. Uh, the older they became, the more stiff they were. Um, you know, and so you need to build into the design mechanisms some way of sensing, sense-making, and reflecting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, this is a wild card question. I'm going to ask you, don't have to answer it, but but I noticed that in, in my area, at least, there's 100 fastest growing companies uh, listed, but the caveat is they're, they're growing fast, but they're not increasing their revenue. The revenues aren't keeping matching pace. Is that the kind of problem that organizational design could solve? Good question. I don't think so. I mean, well, think about the design of the organization is about negative entropy, right? And so, you know, it's all about 
sustainability of an organization is all about more input than output, right? You know, and bringing in more than you're letting out. Rather, bringing in is people, information, revenue, ideas, you know, and the out is a product, a service, a deliverable in some way, then, you know, it's, you know, so the design question is, you know, are we, are we bringing in more than we're letting out? And, you know, and what is, what is, what's the in, what's the negative energy? What's the negative entropy that would fuel the growth, the development, the ongoing, you know, um, and a lot of these big companies, their it is in capital, it's not revenue. And so it's people betting on the company, not, um, you know, and, and immediate, because of that, you don't have to look at your processes, your structures, things like that quite as much. There's not as much pressure to do that because you're getting money from venture capitalists, investors, and things like this who are um, maybe not quite as worried about how it works today, right? But they're more about the brand, the brand identity, um, first to market, right? Things like that. So, but org design should be always about, you know, how do we bring in more than we let out? And so, you know, that could be a process set of issues, could be a people set of issues, could be an organization, how we're, how we're deploying our resources to the markets and the customers. So, you know, it's, um, if you think about what you're, if you frame your question in terms of negative entropy, then you say, well, I mean, organization design does have something to do with that. Um, you know, the question is, what rock do you look under uh, in order to decide, is it a design problem or issue or is it something else? Right, right. No, great. Great insight. Final question for you. Any particular tips or suggestions that you'd offer companies? on, on uh, where, you know, how to work with organizational design, when to bring that into play. It sounds to me from what you just said that, that organizational design is something that you're, it's just intelligent to build in from the outset so that you've always got a mechanism for maintaining organizational vitality over entropy, for example. But, you know, if you were, if you were sitting across from a group of, of executives, a team, executive team in a company, why would they engage with organizational design? I think the simplest answer to that question is because it's probably the only way to achieve your strategy. If you're not deploying the resources of the business to support the strategic direction of the company, and if you don't have a process that says, are we organized and deploying in a way that's consistent with what our express goals are, right? I mean, maybe you are, but there's got to be some place in the deployment process where you ask that question and you say, have we aligned the resources and the capabilities and the capacity of the system to deliver the things that we've agreed are the most important? That's an organization design process methodology. You know, and so I think that's the first, that's the first answer, right? The second is, you know, it's just sort of this question of where's the pain, right? Where's the pain? Uh, I'm working with a group right now where in Europe, where I said, you know, maybe we should do a, a, a great place to work survey, because they're, she's talking, they're talking about what would be the metrics of organization development and organization design. And I thought, you know, well, if it's about making great places to work and changing the culture, then maybe you should do a, 
find a good, great place to work survey at Q12 or something like that. And what I got back was, well, you know, people are just going to bitch and complain. And I thought, well, you know, that's, that might be, a, you know, that's a pain point that might ask you, you know, if that's the pain, then the question is, you know, how do you respond to that pain in a way that creates a better place to work? So, you know, if it's not about the strategy, then it's about the pain points. You know, and design doesn't cure everything, but um, there are certain pain points like around morale, productivity, efficiency, I mean, where design can really make a difference or some rational design thinking process can really make a difference. Excellent. Thank you, Paul. Now, you've got some workshops coming up next year. I do. I'll be in Europe for two, three weeks in March to do organization design workshops. Participate in the Ohana Meetup, which is about the work revolution uh, in March. And then again in October for the European Organization Design Forum. Someplace in the middle of all that, we'll probably do another whole-scale change workshop. How do you really engage? How do you really do what I've been talking about in terms of engaging people? So the plan next year is two big trips to Europe, one in the spring and one in the fall, with the idea being to have some fun and and do some teaching slash learning at the same time. Sounds wonderful. I hope to meet up with you there again after we did that fun time in Madrid. Well, I mean, if for nothing other than the Choice Conference, right? I mean, you know, that would be awesome. We're going to do Organization Design Week for at least one week next year. And if there's enough demand, we'll do it again in the fall. And then we'll do one three-day full-scale change workshop like we did in Potsdam last year, probably early summer before people leave on holiday, probably in Europe. I don't, I don't I, in the moment, I'm not imagining much in the U.S., that seems to be a consistent uh, observation, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. I mean, although the European, the, the organization design forum, which is the sort of the sister organization to the European organization design forum, their conference in April uh, is actually going to be very experimental and sounds like a lot of fun. Probably the most fun I've seen from that group in a long time. So it's kind of exciting to see a little bit of what we've been experiencing in Europe coming over to this side of the pond. Paul, thanks very much for being on this program and for sharing your insights and stories with us. It's just fantastic. You're welcome. Look forward to seeing you. Take care. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fominsighttoaction.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.